Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we'll get into that, but um, well, we might as well start right here. Let's uh, do it. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, episode number four of uh, The Complete Stanley Kubrick. And uh, back with me, as usual, is uh, Travis Trudell. Hello, Travis. Hey, how's it going? Excited to continue our journey through Stanley Kubrick's entire filmography. Exactly, yeah. And uh, we're, we're all alone today. Uh, we were going to have uh, a guest, and then uh, they drew the short straw, so uh, we had to put him down before the episode began unfortunately yeah uh, but I mean, the, that's he, just the way podcasts go he couldn't make it you know because of uh his cowardice and yeah. that's just how it happens exactly but he did die very nicely you know that's all that really matters as long as you die like a man <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so uh so we are covering uh paths of glory which we are um really taking very lightly at the moment but it's actually a pretty uh pretty deep intense movie um and uh yeah so i'll do the the wikipedia rundown as as i usually do uh before we get into it um so this was uh, a movie that was made uh, a couple years after the killing um and uh it was a situation where despite the fact that um kubrick got pretty good kind of a pretty good critical response for the killing uh he got some some kind of offers or interest in making another movie from studios and financial backers uh but he wanted to make a a war film and he picked uh this one uh he remembered reading this book when he was younger uh which by the way um uh, contradicts his uh, statement that he never read a book for fun before <laughs> he graduated <laughs> high school. But uh, uh, surprisingly, Kubrick is a labyrinth of uh, mysteries uh, in interviews. Um, but uh, he he, uh, he had remembered reading this book uh, called Paths of Glory um, when he was a kid, and he thought it would make an interesting story. It's uh, it's based on a true story um, from France about uh, four soldiers who were executed for cowardice uh, as a, a, an example for their regiment um, when they refused to fight in a battle. Uh, the rest of the kind of details are, are different both in the book and in the movie, um, but, uh, but that's kind of the general uh, gist of it, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, and uh, he kind of shopped around the concept to these studios and nobody it didn't really sound like a blockbuster to anybody i guess um and uh the they kind of all wanted to uh change the story make it into a love story or you know add some sort of commercial element to it um until uh they gave it to kirk douglas who read it and loved it didn't want to change a thing um and uh wanted to star in it and so they took it to united artists who had made the killing and told them that they had no future in filmmaking or that they were one of the lower end of uh filmmakers at, that they had at united <laughs> artists um, but with kirk douglas it looked a little bit more attractive so they uh they bankrolled the movie for about uh a million dollars which is 10 times more than they put into uh the killing and five times more than the killing cost uh, overall um and so they uh they went out and um shot it in germany uh at the uh 
most interesting to to me i think at the uh the same chateau that is in um last year at marion bad uh, and you can see that really clearly especially in the um, execution scene which they film outside um, you know all that's missing there are the uh the bushes with no shadows uh from from that uh, layout um and uh yeah, that's basically it. I mean, the movie uh, did uh, a lot better than um, than the killing did. Uh, they didn't bury it, although it was um, not per particularly well received in Europe and was not even released in France. Um, and in fact, was um, banned there until the mid '70s, when movies were no longer any movies were no longer banned in France. Um, and once it was released there, it was actually uh, pretty successful. Um, and, uh, that's pretty much it. So, uh, Travis, what do you think of Paths of Glory? Wow. There's a lot to think about this movie. Um, I guess first I'll start off with the, uh, uh comment you made, the million dollar budget. Um, you could see that Stanley Kubrick has all that money is up on the screen. Um, he there's so much attention to detail. There's so much uh, lavish uh, production sequences, um, especially these long, really long, beautiful, just camera moves through the trenches. Um, and this this movie is very. It's one of those movies that every time I watch it, it makes me angry. Because just uh, the amount of injustice that's happening in this movie and the amount of uh, just laissez-faire, uh, bourgeois attitude of uh, how war is a gentleman's thing and all the, uh, all the soldiers are just cannon fodder for uh, these greater ideals and these greater ideas and that hiding behind uh, the word patriotism. Um, so this viewing, there's lots of resonance for the now, um, just this idea of how, uh, how easy it is for people of power and people of uh, considerable wealth to uh, flaunt the concepts of just simply going to war just because, and, you know, all the... Uh, the profiteering that could possibly happen because of it so and then the idea of just hiding behind all these foolish decisions and the treating people poorly in the name of patriotism really has a uh, uh, resonates a lot more strongly with me than it has in the past and uh yeah so i think this is really I mean, we've talked about the last three movies he's done and talked about, like, we're finally starting to see Stanley Kubrick emerge, and this one feels a lot more like him. Uh, this is, like, you know, this is... he's He hits a very big... Uh, a very big watershed moment for his style and his subject matter and his tone, and just this is almost a perfect summation of... Uh, themes that carries throughout the rest of his films like even more crystal clear than the the three films that preceded this what'd you think do you like this one is this one of the ones that is in in your list of things that go uh get foisted upon a, a petard and shown around town <laughs> um 
So I agree with uh, everything that you just said. And I think that there's so much that you touched on that we'll get into. I think you brought up kind of three really big things about this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think the just the first one that kind of is what you're you're asking here. Um, I, I totally agree that this is the first Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, with a capital M this was uh, the first film that feels like it's entirely about well not entirely I guess we'll get into that but it's 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 really the themes and and his control and mastery of what he's doing um, is really about what he wants to say about humanity and about um uh you know issues at large um with his films and i think this is really the beginning of that and i also think it's the beginning of him as a visual stylist um there are certain moments for sure in the previous movies that you can point to and say that's a stanley kubrick moment or that's a stanley kubrick shot this film is entirely a Stanley Kubrick film and um you know I think about like the cheesy YouTube montages that people uh that people will make of directors and sort of iconic shots of their uh Mm -hmm. career and uh there's multiple multiple times in this movie where you can imagine uh each shot being put into those montages because you look at that one shot and you say that's that is Stanley Kubrick as a as a visual artist in a nutshell um oh, yeah and 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 the uh this is like the first one where you feel there is a a well thought out complete visual arc that from beginning to end has you know it isn't like let's grab this shot let's make this look good there are themes visual themes that he is able to uh, completely uh, play through as opposed to kind of like being limited on his budget and not be able to uh, you know have these moments that echo throughout the piece you know he's gotten away with it a few times but this movie it seems like you know you could almost like see a music score of kind of like you know the themes as they move through visually and how they carry later into the film and how what they mean here versus what they mean there um we'll you know we'll talk about more of that as we go through the the you know the whole story and and what's going on in the film but yeah i agree like this is his first like you know you can see him stepping away from this film and being satisfied a little bit more than he has in the past with his other films yeah and it's such a remarkable leap from the killing in the sense of uh you when you watch the those earlier films especially um killer's kiss and the killing because fear and desire is not it it barely even has many cool shots in it um so it doesn't even rise to this level but i think there's a lot of just cool shots in those movies you know Mm -hmm. interesting things that are moments that are interesting um that's something i think that uh, happens more often with kind of mid-tier um hollywood directors these days because of the 
um, ubiquity of music videos uh, in the 80s and 90s. They, people have been raised on the idea that um, cool moments or interesting, uh, an interesting sequence makes for uh, a compelling visual style. Um, but you cannot sustain that through an entire movie and come away with um, a true sense that the grammar of the movie speaks to the larger meaning of the movie. And I think that's true in The Killing to a certain degree, that there's not really... I think he has it in editing in The Killing, but I don't think the camera work and uh, the kind of progression of that camera work it is as cohesive as it is in Paths of Glory. Um, I, I guess we're kind of talking in abstracts now, but we will talk about the specifics <laughs> of it as we go through the movie. Um, yeah, and and I think I think it's the choice of his cinematographers as well. With the killing, he you know they the studio kind of had him work start working with a you know a studio cinematographer, and it felt a lot more kind of like in 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 the style of those films of that time yeah and with an occasional shot of uh you know something interesting or something kubrickian in terms of uh the staging or blocking of the shot where this one um it's a european cinematographer and you could feel like there was a more artistic sense to what was going on and less of a let's get this done which could also be part of the budget as well now we have the time to do something right well, and I, would, yeah. I was definitely wondering about that. You know, I mean, I think because it's such a small window between the killing and this, and obviously, um, you know, we're operating in, in, a, in a time zone in this podcast where it's only been an hour and a half since he started working on the killing. But uh, you take a year to make a movie uh, and you learn a lot in that year. It's, it's a crash mm-hmm. course in making a better movie the next time out. So he did have plenty of time to grow in that time period. Um, but it is still, I think, a major jump uh, from that film to this film. I, I um, Before I guess I address the other two things that you mentioned, I will say, uh, just kind of lay my cards on the table, um, I think this is one of his best films this was actually, um, when I was a teenager, my favorite movie of all time, sort of the, the, what people, you know, because when you're into movies, when you're a kid in particular, I mean, this is true through your whole life, but when you're, when you're a kid, people, oh, you like movies, what's your favorite movie? So you have to have like the, the answer. And so this was the movie that I chose as my answer. And maybe that part of that was me being a smart ass because I knew most people were not going to know this movie. Yeah, <laughs> but I think uh, the reason that uh, that I really responded so strongly to this movie um, was that timeless quality, that feeling that it was it felt so relevant to even the the mid '90s when I saw this movie for the first time, and uh, I grew up on older movies, so I it wasn't that I never made that connection with older movies. Um, but I think that this movie really spoke to me on a personal level in terms of what I saw in the, the injustice of the world. Um, and I guess that kind of comes to what, uh, and then, but, uh, you know, 
just before I, I get to that, I mean, I, the other thing is just like the filmmaking is so obvious and brav it's sort of bravura filmmaking that like, you know, the, those tracking shots are not something that you can, uh, that you can miss. Um, and I think, you know, being raised on films like Goodfellas and, um, you know, all, all the Scorsese stuff, which obviously like Kubrick had a big influence on, on Scorsese. Um, and like, I see, I see so much of those films in Kubrick and in this movie in particular, that it really made it, um, it, it made it click for me in a way that a lot of other movies, um, didn't click for me. Um, but I think that this world of, you know, people in power, um, doing things to, uh, to people who don't have power just because they can or for their egos or to advance their own agendas, um, I think goes beyond, uh, the, the war setting. You know, I, th I think it makes obviously total sense that this is thought of as an anti-war movie, but I actually don't think that this movie, I think what makes this movie so great, um, is that it is not really specifically about war that it is much more about men in power and the injustices that they place on people because they are able to and because it makes them more comfortable in their power um and i, I think that that aspect of it you know you, you talked about obviously what's going on uh in politics today and in the war um situation but i think that this is entirely relevant to what's happening in movies right now with Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that, uh, that that story is a story about, um, men in power and feeling, uh, like they are above the law and they can do anything that they want because they have control over people who are, um, you know, who, who don't have that same power. And much like, um, you know, how to a certain degree mistreating women in that way is not really about the sex or about, um, you know, sleeping with famous actresses or assaulting famous actresses, but it's, it's about wielding that power and feeling like you're a powerful man. And I think that that's the same thing in this film. They, they don't care about killing these people. It doesn't make them feel good to kill these people. It makes them feel good to know that they have this power over these men and that they are able to, uh, you know, live in their magical parties and, you know, have this beautiful palace to, uh, to sleep in every night while these other people are in the trenches. Um, and I think that goes beyond the, uh, the kind of war element, uh, of it. Oh yeah, for sure. I think there's a there's a huge disconnect uh, between people with power and those that are without, and even those that without, you know, still try to find someone to feel powerful over. Which you know, it's a whole. It's the only thing that a trickle down actually is correct on. You know, trickle down economics may not work, but trickle down uh, <laughs> trickle down oppression does work yeah. completely. Well, and, and I think uh, that 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 also that structure is here in this film as well. That trickle down, you know, because in a way the 
the um, Brulard, who is sort of like the commander of the French forces, you know, wields his power against Moreau, and Moreau wields his power against Douglas, and Douglas mm-hmm. wields his power, you know, in in a good way, or at least in the best way that he possibly can, um, you know, against the the um, uh, the guy who uh, who kills his own man. Um, I forget uh, oh, what uh... his um, what his name is, but. I mean, so, but regardless, I mean, I think that that aspect of it is is definitely represented here as well. Um, I mean, because ultimately Brulard is the is the true villain here, um, and even the movie plays a sleight of hand on in that because Moreau is kind of. I think it's very easy to casually watch this movie and think of Moreau as the villain of the film, um, and to think, okay, well, there like these guys die in the end, sure. But at least this this terrible general, there was justice for this terrible general. But ultimately, he's not the one that was responsible for this attack. Brulard was the was the one who forced them to do this and used his cunning rather than you know strong arm tactics to convince oh, yeah. Moreau that it was a good idea to kill all of his men. Oh yeah, Moreau. Uh... I mean, if, let's we we can start right here. This is the beginning of the movie. Uh, we have Moreau, uh, George McCready, uh, with a big scar on his face, totally making you feel like he's going to be the villain of the film. Uh, sitting there, having a having a nice little afternoon meet with uh, his superior, uh, Georges Brulard, General Georges Brulard, and uh, Brulard comes in completely like, "This is what we want to do. We want to take this thing called the Ant Hill, which." right away is a total um you know you know a total joke within the fact that it's the smallest thing that we could possibly take we're making a mountain out of an anthill <laughs> like this is this is a, a something that is very like you know could be very insignificant but it's going to be huge for all the people that are involved in this um so we need to take this position because it's a german stronghold that helps open up it's the key to this whole region and it's impenetrable, and we need to just throw all of our soldiers at it, um, you know, until we've cut a bloody swath all the way up to the front door and then try to take it. And, you know, Moreau actually kind of says, we can't do that. It's impossible. We'd lose way too many men. And that's when you see Brulard kind of play against his, oh, well, there was going to be a promotion involved for you. You know, we were going to bring you up and put you in charge of a whole regiment. Uh, but, you know, uh, I can see if you, if you don't think you can do it. And totally just plays into this other concept that we, we, we touched upon a little bit but haven't discussed fully, which is this uh, concept of what it means to be a man in this world. And he's basically giving them two things. You know, you can only be a great person if you ascend in ranks. And you can only be a man as if you don't back down from a challenge. And so he's given both his, uh, his social, uh, social uh, carrot at the end of the stick. And then he's also given him the whip at the back, at the back end, you know, telling him if you're not a man, you can't, you know, you got to do this. And that sets the whole, you know, the rest of the movie in, in pace. And, uh, you know, that's when, uh, General Moreau or Paul, um, you know, says, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to start this offensive. And the next scene, we go right into 
walking through the trenches and these trenches I mean I don't know how many miles of trenches that uh, Kubrick actually made for this but I mean it's got to be a good uh, you know three three football fields worth of trenches because some of these shots are just incredibly long yeah he cuts up the tracking shots a little bit with some close-ups but you can tell that they are um, continuous shots and that they are not uh, just like circling back on the same, you know, small bit of trench that they yeah. carved out. Um, I, one thing I really love about the juxtaposition of these two scenes is that when you watch the blocking in the, in the first scene, it's extremely fluid and almost abstract. Like they're, mm-hmm. they walk around in a circle around a table. The camera is constantly moving. It's almost similar to the um, tracking shots that he uses during the party scene later on. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and the camera's very airy and light and yeah, floating above everything. Yeah, and then like all of a sudden you've got Moreau in the trenches, and it's tight, and it's almost like the camera is carving out these trenches as it goes. Um, so mm-hmm. claustrophobic and, um, you know, with the constant explosions going on overhead. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're really seeing all of this stuff as the camera pulls back. You've never seen this area before. So you're, you're constantly ill at ease because you don't know where you're going because every yeah, day, as it pulls, pulls back you're that's the only way that you, you only are, they only reveal where you are, once you've already been there yeah they like rarely is the camera facing forward and pushing through the trenches it's always leading like it's always uh leading a character walking towards camera and so and you feel a weight to the camera the camera's way lower than in the previous scenes previous scene the camera was at eye level or above eye level getting really kind of above it while this trench camera is really low and looking up so everything, the trenches seem tall and everyone seems imposing and everyone looks uh, miserable. And it's, uh, yeah, the blocking of that earlier scene, there's this, there's this great moment where, uh, what was his name, uh, Brulard or George, he walks a very long, circuitous route to get back to a table that they were just sitting yeah. at. And it's, and it's during a scene of him taking the long way around to get to a point right. in his story which you know it's just really that's just a wonderful touch you know it's not just two guys sitting around a table it's there's more to it and he Kubrick is now using this uh, you know this ability to have the time to do something like this to uh, really uh, both tie the you know the what's going on uh, verbally and visually, which uh, he hasn't really been able to do a lot up until this point. I guess I should mention the very beginning is another narration. Right, documentary style narration. Yeah, this is where we are, this is what's happening. It has the same procedural tone that we got in the killing at the beginning. Um, but then it just drops. Once we, once we get that we're in France at this time and we're inside this conversation, we're never visited again by this narration, which is really nice. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, and actually they mention it on the commentary, it reminded me immediately of the narration at the beginning of Casablanca, where it's kind of like, yes. 
you know, we got to tell you this part so that you know what we're talking about here and go, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so it's not surprising that we never go back to it. Um, no. But I do think that there is a nice touch there, which is that what they're talking about is completely the opposite of what you're seeing because this is, you know, a giant, beautiful chateau that this high ranking general is pulling up to in a car and getting out with lines of impeccably dressed soldiers. Like this is the, this is not that world that they're describing. We're going to get to that world later in the movie, but this is, you know, the, the height of civilization that they're, uh, they're depicting in this opening scene. So I think the irony of Kubrick kind of begins immediately there. Yep. For sure. Um, so yeah, so we, we now we we're in the trenches. We're with, uh, uh, general Moreau as he's what he probably believes is given a good old pep talk to all the soldiers as he's marching through the trenches on his way to see Colonel Dax, uh, who's Kirk Douglas. And, you know, in his, in Kubrick's typical fashion, he's introducing us to the key players that will come up later um, in the film, just like in The Killing, where we have this long kind of you know tracking shot where we meet the bartender and the bookie and the guy who's putting it all together. Uh, we do the same thing here. We we meet uh, <clears throat> we meet uh, Timothy Carey right off the bat, playing another weird role, um, playing a private feral. <laughs> <laughs> which is a great name for him. Uh, then we get to meet, uh, who is it, Ralph Meeker. Um, he he does a pass-through, and then there's a couple other characters that we get to meet, um, especially, and, and then including a shell a shell shock soldier played by Fred Bell, um, which I think is the most, that's when we get the most telling aspect of who uh, General Moreau is and one of the major themes in this movie of uh, acting like a man. Yep. Um, the, you know the character the shell shock soldier is uh, is having a hard time answering the general's questions he you know it's and they're very simple questions and most of them are relating around are you ready to ready kill to, more Germans ready to kill more Germans like it's an exciting you know this is a, this is a getaway let's go shoot some Germans um, but he's very he can't get it together and he's kind of babbling and muttering and one of the other soldiers says sir he's he's shell-shocked he's like nonsense that's a bunch of crap there's no such thing as that pull yourself together be a man and then you know no compassion is given to this guy who's probably seen some horrible horrible things who has laid down his life for uh whatever this war is instead of meeting him with compassion for his condition it's a total get that guy out of here i don't want him ruining things for the rest of us and you know i want him transferred and gone because he's going to bring down the morale and that kind of stuff starts catching and next thing you know and that's when we also meet a uh, uh, moreau's little sycophant uh, uh saint Aubin, major saint Aubin, or whatever his name is um who completely just yes mans him all the way through the rest the of the movie? Biggest douchebag in this movie by far. Oh uh, my god! He also his shitty his shit eating grin during the court scene. Yeah, he's it's asking just these brutal. questions. Ugh, oh, you just want to smack him! <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, no, I mean, I the thing I love about this sequence is that it reminds me of like uh, the red carpet 
or like mm. uh like a local news uh promotional interview and because it, he's just asking the same dumb questions and he doesn't give a shit what these people say and nope. he you know he's there for his own like to feel good about himself or you know because because he thinks that these people are going to fawn all over him because he's a general um, oh, and yeah. he just wants to hear the same things every single time and uh and he gets to this guy and just all of this completely breaks down and you know those are the moments that you live for in 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 uh sequences like that because uh it's so artificial and cheesy and fake and you really the only way you know who these people really are you know on the red carpet is when things go wrong uh and mm-hmm the the artificiality breaks down and this guy really reveals himself in that moment that he doesn't care about these soldiers he's not there to make them feel better or to get them even really to fight harder he's not interested he you know he doesn't care if they fight hard or not he just wants his glory um and uh that's all that that matters to him which is another thing uh that uh I didn't mention at the beginning, which is the, that Paths of Glory itself is uh, from a poem. It, uh, the The full poem is something along the lines of that Paths of Glory only lead to the grave. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, right again, you've got kind of like this idea, you, oh, we're going to see a war movie called Paths of Glory. That sounds pretty rah-rah uh, to me. You know, it, sound, oh, yeah. it sounds like a... Um, a pretty patriotic, uh, you know, soldiers. Well, you know, they're going out there and they might, they're risking their lives, but at the end of the day, there'll be glory. Um, but the only people who have any interest in the movie, you know, there's another added layer of irony because the only people who have any interest in glory in the movie are the generals who are not, uh, being led to the grave. These are not the people who are going to die. And these guys in the trenches, all they want is not, not to die <laughs> and all yeah. Kirk Douglas want, or really, although, you know, and we'll get to that one conversation before the attack, all they, some of them, all, some of them want is not to get hurt. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you exactly. know, I think, uh, I think that, uh, there is like that added layer there, but for him, you know, he's, he's really only concerned with himself. And I think that moment really reveals that in his character. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You can tell he's just, strutting he's peacocking down there and just wants everyone wants everyone to hold a mirror to him so he can see how awesome he is and uh and you can see in the soldiers faces they're tired of telling him how great he is like they're just they just don't want to do this anymore well speaking of peacocking um he walks (laughs) down the uh the trenches and he gets to none other than um kirk douglas's pecs oh yeah first time we meet him shirt off i even made a note of that (laughs) shirt off Kirk Douglas we get to see him in all his glory just as he, he probably that was probably a note from himself too oh yeah I think what that's if in I'm his taking contract. putting my shirt on yeah <laughs> they were like well they Kubrick looked away for a second while he was setting up the lights and he was like Kirk do you have your shirt off <laughs> I just went to craft service to grab a coffee <laughs> what happened I just it just feels more comfortable with my shirt off <laughs> Somebody get Kirk a shirt. He lost his shirt. No, no. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's a total, total Douglas move. 
but it you know it works. It has the same almost introduction as uh, meeting Sterling Hayden and the killer. Oh yeah, they're both like getting dressed and washing up after uh, whatever it is they're doing, and uh, it's that it's that also it's kind of you know that it's a shorthand for. He's, you know, he's a common guy down here in the trenches with everyone else. He's not, you know, wearing his medals when we first meet him. He's, he's, uh, you know, flesh. He's a man. He's the unassuming man. He's a man mm-hmm. without having to prove that he's a man. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the, the distinction between Sterling Hayden and Elijah Cook Jr. in uh, The Killing and here with Moreau and, um, and Kirk Douglas. But I do think the scene is, is very interesting in that it mirrors... Um, the uh, the earlier scene, uh, in terms of Moreau convincing using Douglas's kind of weaknesses, uh, and in this in this scene his weaknesses are perhaps more literal in the sense that he is in a position of weakness because he um, is speaking to his commanding officer, um. But he uses that to convince Kirk Douglas to go along with it. And I think that's something that doesn't really get addressed in the movie, which is that um, there's nothing... If Kirk Douglas really wanted to save his men, he would have refused to take the antil and gone to Mm -hmm. prison or been executed in that moment. And probably somebody would have just taken his place and they would have had the the same attack but he had that option as well and it was in a sense his own um determination uh that doomed his men uh, just as much as it was Moreau's pride that doomed them um I mean ultimately again I feel that really the you know the person who's responsible for this is Brulard, but I think uh, there there is an opportunity that I think can miss people here where this didn't have to happen on uh, Dax's watch, um, but he you know is is not in a position to make that risk uh, at this point. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you know there's also the sense of if you don't do it, I'm going to get someone else to do sure. it. Sure. And, and as you see, as we start to meet the other kind of commanders of this uh, brigade, um, you know, you can also see that Kirk Douglas is like, well, maybe if I lead them, there's a chance that this will be more successful with less casualties. Like I can do something better than these other guys who are, you know, craven and weak and cowardly in some senses or even less caring for the men than uh you know moreau is so you know there is this bit of you know uh the road to hell is paved with good intentions like he he his intention is to maybe be there with his men and try to help them through it um because he does he's he he he, uh moreau uses the same uh uh, psychology on him challenging him and his abilities and then says well fine i'll just I'll just put you put you at a desk job for a while and get you out of here. Obviously, you you can't you can't handle this stuff, which you know again challenging everyone's manhood and abilities, uh, which you know in turn has Kirk Douglas saying agreeing to the uh, completely suicidal mission. I mean, he even uh, in this scene we learn that uh, Kirk Douglas was a criminal lawyer, 
and uh, you know before and uh, prosecutor and uh, you see or is it defense I can't remember but uh, you see uh, him trying to uh, go at Kirk Douglas with his uh, you see Moreau go at Kirk Douglas with logic and numbers well we're gonna lose 10% here and 20% of our men at this point and until the point where like Kirk does like we're gonna lose over half of our men and he's 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 commanding a pretty large battalion of people and uh, you know just those odds are just uh, ridiculous it's it's too much and uh, but you know he acquiesces you know under duress and under the same sort of uh, pressures um, with the exception of there was no like promise of promotion um, which right you know well well which, yeah i mean brulard is playing to moreau's vanity whereas i think mm-hmm. moreau is playing to kirk douglas's kind of sense of uh or his survival mode like his his sense of pride at getting as far as he's gotten and and in his yeah. men and i mean i think yeah. dax kind of signs his uh i think he knows that they're all going to die when he says you know um, if we can't take it, then no one can. He's telling yep. Moreau, we are going to die to show you that this cannot be taken, basically. Yeah, so hopefully other people won't have to try as yeah. well. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. and then it's, a, you know, it's that sense of, Dax has a sense of obligation, like he's obligated to his men because he cares about right. them and cares for them, um, which, you know, plays big because he does go to bat for them later in the movie in a big way. Yeah, and you well, and um, you see it in the attack as well. I mean, we're, uh, we we can we can touch on the things that come between this and the attack, um, but uh, I, I will say here that I mean, it's clear that they have respect for him in that scene, and that you know they're they're following him more than they're following anything else. Um, yeah, and, and he's putting himself right out there in the front, like yeah and I, he's not shying back he's not calling the shots from the trenches right. he's in front well and i think that's kind of where uh we get into what i was hinting at earlier when i said that this isn't entirely uh a stanley kubrick movie because i do think that there are two movies at play here and the vast majority of the film is kind of the thrust of the film is is kubrick's uh themes and sort of style but this is also a Kirk Douglas vehicle, and mm-hmm. it's very much kind of um, ham-fisted in that. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't think it's nece- I don't think the movie is necessarily worse for it because I think this this story is so depressing that if you don't have somebody in the middle of it who's sort of standing up for what's right, it would like. I, I can only imagine what Mr. Smith goes to Washington would be without Mr. Smith. You know, that would just be the, well, that would actually be just Washington now, but yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, well, we know how depressing that movie would look, <laughs> would be. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I think, you know, that, that I do think that uh, this movie is saved in a way by having somebody in the middle of it be like, you're all going to hell for doing what you're doing right now. Um, but it, but it is kind of uh, wedged into a movie that doesn't really uh, concern itself with men like that that stick up for themselves or, or for other people and sort of that, that 
that represent these higher ideals that you really only see in movies. You know, he's very much almost like a superhero in this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that aspect of it where he's like really, you know, he's the guy in the attack and all that aspect of it um, really, it becomes like a Kirk Douglas movie. In, I feel that Kubrick does interject his own style into that war scene. Oh yeah, uh, that uh, I've never. I, I'm trying to think of like early uses of the zoom lens, and this is one of the earliest ones I remember being very like taken aback by its use, um, because throughout the instead of cutting into Kirk Douglas close-ups of him struggling and pushing. There's lots of zooming in on his face in the middle of all this fr- yeah. you know, the fray and then zooming back out to take in the scope of everything. And then we, as we're tracking along, as they're moving from section to section through no man's land, through the wire, and then you see, you know, the camera pushes back in and there's Kirk Douglas again in the middle of it all. And then they pull back out again. And I think that's very much a uh, uh, something unique that makes that makes this movie stand out because you know i i think i i I honestly can't think you know it isn't until like the 1960s and 70s where i start seeing cinematographers really utilize the zoom lens um you know regularly you know i'm thinking like altman and stuff like that just constantly using that lens to pick out little pieces of a story and make and show importance out of the larger uh scope of what's going on and Kubrick really makes good use of it here and it's really the first time that I I can remember I mean I'm not you know super deep in total film history that you know I'm sure someone out there is going to say wow 1932 and and I'm going to be like yeah okay great so we did we did skip over two kind of important moments one that's important because it sets up one of the plot lines of the uh, of the three Mm -hmm. men and then one that is very odd in the film in that it doesn't really tie into much of anything else uh, in the, in um, the movie. Yes, the... Um, but uh, let's start with the uh, with the kind of clear uh, kind of establishing of this uh, yeah. story of one of the three men, the, this uh, sort of recon mission that they go on at night. Um, uh, Ralph Meeker's character, yeah. Corporal Paris. There you go, Paris. Yeah, so um what's the what's the other guy's name? Uh Sergeant Boulanger is the uh is the coward, the, the Yeah, bad, Freed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so he uh he kind of they, they go out and they they've got a guy, a scout kind of running out to see what the deal is. And uh Bert Freed the Bert Bert Freed's character freaks out. He's not coming back soon enough. Um, he like sets out a grenade right in the front of the the foreground of the shot. Uh, you know, it's the the gun on the table in the first act, and mm. uh, waits until he you know decides he's going to freak out. He just picks up the grenade and throws it and runs away, <laughs> expecting that the other guy is is going to die. Um, and uh, and he does not die. He comes back and he's like, "Hey, whoa, what was that?" <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, when he when he throw when he does his freak out, I mean, he places his gun down, throws a grenade, and it just runs away. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, and so you know, Ralph Meeker like actually picks up the gun, you know, goes and investigates. 
sees that he's killed he's killed the other soldier another pretty and gruesome then, uh, kubrick shot there oh that yeah death, very gruesome, shot. gruesome reveal we got the uh what is it the phosphorus being shot up in the sky yeah. so as we get revealed it's revealed by the phosphorus which uh yeah very very well done and then yeah we head back to head back to the trenches and yeah uh what's his face bert freed uh, his character is already filling out a report saying that everyone's dead <laughs> you know yeah and He's again just this like is, this is a moment of uh, you know trickle down uh power where um this guy is not particularly powerful but he is above he is you know above this other guy and uh he uh, he's an officer, I guess, um, and uh, he is a drunk and is lying and mur- just murdered somebody. But because he is an officer and this guy is not, there's nothing that this guy can do about it. Yep. Yeah, and he, you know, he he flatly says it to him too. Yeah. He goes, hey, you know what? Why don't we just say that he was killed by someone else, and we'll just go on our merry way. And uh, uh, Ralph Meeker's character is not not compliant with that. He's not happy with that. He's, uh, but he, when uh, Kirk Douglas enters the room, instead of just you know saying, yeah, it, he doesn't saying this is what happened. He just gives his salute and walks out of the room. No, and in fact, would would he have said anything if uh, he hadn't cho- been chosen? Uh, as one of the three men to Kirk Douglas. Yeah. I, I don't think so. I think that he had been convinced by what he said. And then I think this this scene kind of, for me, recalled a lot um, Grand Illusion, just the the idea mm. that, um, you know, there's there are these classes and they are kind of more important than any sort of uh, justice or truth or or you know even um, sides in a war um, there's that real sense that none of this really matters that it's all a game and you know at the end of the day this guy even though he's you know half the man this other guy is like he has the all of the power and because he is higher up in the ranking um yeah by by a twist of fate or by a little bit more uh power than the other kid who went to school with him you know he says that too he goes what's his deal he's like i went to school with him we don't get along yeah well he says uh he he thinks i don't respect him and he's right yeah (laughs) so um so the other scene before the attack is this um conversation which uh, apparently was taken from the book um between uh two two guys the same guy who uh um was in the killing uh Uh, joe turkle yeah who goes on to play the bartender in the shining Mm -hmm. um explaining that uh he thinks that people are not actually afraid of death in war because they know they're going to die no matter what and what they're really afraid of is being hurt yeah what do you think (laughs) i i you know it it, it's i can see why he would want to pull that out of the book and keep it there because it's it's true i mean we all fear death but death is such an abstract because it comes to all of us and we don't know what 
you know, you don't come out on the other side of death. So because it's an abstract, you know, we kind of fear it, but it, we fear a concept. Whereas pain, we've experienced pain and we know that it sucks. <laughs> and so I think people feel uh, fear pain more than they fear death. And he's he's absolutely right. It's a really great um, concept and a really great kind of thought because that's, you know, that's... Uh, that's a big part of war is this idea where like, you know, these people are putting themselves out there and the ones that get damaged or get, um, injured, um, and come out on the other side, you know, they're facing a, a much greater fear than the ones who have just, just simply died. Yeah. So I think with that conversation, um, that, it really underscores the pointlessness of what comes afterwards because mm -hmm. these people, if you, if you believe what he's saying, these people aren't getting out of the trenches because, or aren't staying in the trenches because they're afraid to die, which is what the thought process is behind pulling three of them out and killing them that the next time, they'll actually go out because they know they're dead anyway. But if they're not mm -hmm. afraid to die, if they're only afraid to get hurt, then there's no point in killing these three guys because the next time they're going to be just as afraid of getting hurt and they'd rather face a firing squad after a nice duck dinner than, <laughs> than to, to go out and risk having a limb blown off and sit in the middle of this hellscape bleeding to death uh you know if if you have those if those are your only two options uh you know i'm going to take the duck every time yeah exactly so the one aspect of the attack we haven't mentioned yet is the what moreau was doing during the attack which is trying mm -hmm. to murder his own soldiers yeah see he yeah, seems so... great Oh, he's a he's a he's a heck of a guy, yeah. So we have uh, you know the whole the whole idea is that the whole whole company is going to surge all together, and uh, when Kirk Douglas looks back, he sees a whole section of the company that hasn't left the trenches at all, um, and uh, you know, of course he goes back. You know, he's that much of a hero that he can go out to the middle of no man's land to survive <laughs> and then make it all the way back so he can say, hey, what's the deal, guys? Why aren't we going? Um, and yeah, the general sees this and instead of thinking like, get someone out there, get those guys out of the trenches, let's go. He says, well, screw them. They're going to be cowards. Let's just shoot them all. Let's bomb them. And so he calls in an artillery strike on his own trenches. Um which thankfully, some oh. someone on the other end of the phone says, "I love no. that guy." <laughs> yeah, he's the oh. best. He's like, "Yeah, that's not happening." What if you died? Then where would I be? That's <laughs> yeah, so great. I know, right? <laughs> I'm gonna need that in writing. <laughs> he's like, he's, yeah. kind of, he's kind of like the uh, he's kind of like the sassy black woman bureaucrat in like you know bad Hollywood movies. Yeah, he's like, I'm not putting um, myself. Yeah, out there I'm gonna you. need that in writing. Like he should be chewing gum. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he plays it. He plays it so good too, because he's so deadpan. You don't. He has. He's like. He's not even like overly emotional totally. or really playing it out. He's just like, yeah, 
Nah, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna need that in writing. I, you know, this just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, and it's really um, great because Moreau just steamrolls the guy who's in the room with him. You know, he's just not even concerned with with him, and then he just meets this brick wall that there's just absolutely nothing that he can do anything about. Like it's it. It makes me faithful for our, like, nuclear attack that's coming. Like, that there's some guy that actually presses the real button who's like, um, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I said, I ordered a strike. Nah, we're not doing that. I really, I don't think we're going to do this. <laughs> Which is funny because, you know, this becomes right. a, uh, the center subject of a movie later down yes. the road. I didn't even, uh, yeah, I didn't even mean that. There you go. Um, yeah, no, so, uh, obviously, like, pretty straightforward, horrible thing that this guy does, uh, that's gonna come back to bite him in the ass later, but for now, he's still, uh, he's still the fancy general, so he decides he wants to kill literally everybody, uh, in the regiment, and, uh, to, to which, uh, Brulard says something along the lines of, that seems like a little much, how about, let's make yeah. it a dozen. <laughs> oh, that scene, and you just see Kirk Douglas yeah. like steaming. Yeah, he says he wants uh, ten guys from each regiment, which would make a hundred men. He wants to kill a hundred men for uh, for failing to all die uh, that day. Yeah, and uh, yeah, then they barter with all these, you know, which just goes to show again just the lack of compassion and humanity they have because of their social statures and their class. And yeah, well, and they don't little, even think uh, of them as 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 the same because Kirk Douglas offers himself up and they yeah. just immediately are like, let's, you know, nobody said anything about officers. Let's leave, you know, let's leave that out of this. Oh yeah. Cause once, once, once we set a, once we set a precedent that officers can be right. killed over these kinds of things and they're all going to be in trouble. So, uh, yeah. And then it, you know, it ends up with, uh, three, each division picks one man and, that's it. They'll be they'll be court-martialed for cowardice in the face of the enemy, and uh, they will be sentenced to be executed. And they pick uh, and they uh, pick the each guy for a different reason. Um, but of course, my favorite is Timothy Carey, who has been selected because he is a social undesirable. <laughs> oh God, yeah, well, <laughs> it's so bad. And you know. Who else but Timothy Carey can play this role? Oh, I yeah. Mean, right? No. It, he plays it. It's amazing. Perfect. Yeah. The, well, um, there's so many great Timothy Carey stories about this movie, but the, my two favorite, well, of course, obviously, like, uh, the when he's eating the duck. Uh, so I don't know if you read about this, but uh, apparently he just could not do that scene, and they needed, <laughs> like, a whole duck for each each shot. So, oh, so he just kept eating the piece of the duck and blowing the scene. And so <laughs> they were just like, so literally they were running out of ducks. Like Kubrick in one interview, he was like, I think we went through 65 ducks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so that's just amazing. But, um, but apparently Timothy Carey faked his own kidnapping while shooting the movie and the police didn't buy it. Like they found him on the side of the road and he'd been tied up and bound and gagged or something. And, uh, like, I guess it was, he did it like for publicity or, or oh I don't goodness. even know why. Um, 
So they actually had to fire him from the movie. James Harris fired Timothy Carey. And the reason, one of the other reasons in the attack why you don't see, um, or why you see so much of Kirk Douglas is because you, they were supposed to show the three men and what happened to them during the attack. But uh, the attack was the last thing that they filmed. And so they had Um. Timothy Carey body doubles for a few shots, like where he's turned away from the camera, but they were not able to use him in the attack. And they were like, well, we can't have two of the guys and not the third guy. So they just cut those moments completely from the scene. I think it makes for um, a more impactful courtroom moment because you don't know what happened to these guys until the courtroom. Um, but I do think it loses a little bit from the attack in the sense that it does really become the Kirk Douglas show. And I do think that is as great as it is as a, like a piece of filmmaking. I don't think it's particularly a memorable moment in the movie, which almost like makes it more interesting in the context of the movie that like the only war scene is pretty insignificant to the plot. Um, mm-hmm. so, but that's why they don't have that's... the guys because he got fired for pretending to kidnap himself. Oh, dude, that's an amazing story. Uh, well, I mean that now that makes perfect sense. Cause it is, I mean, that, that scene is really, it's, it's memorable in terms of its own set piece, but you know, it doesn't progress the individual characters stories right. forward, which we've painstakingly set up, you know, who these guys are and what they're doing. Um, but it does it does end up making the courtroom scene uh, more powerful because you're you're also left wondering you know you know for in some d- disturbing way you know did any of these guys just refuse to go out there and do their duty or you know but that that's neither here nor there because then at some point you you start questioning yourself because you're like oh why do I even care about that these right. guys shouldn't be killed for any reason um, but uh. Oh shoot! I, I was just thinking about that uh, Kirk Douglas uh, fight, uh, the the battle. Oh yeah, that was one of the notes I had written. Was like, yeah, this this spectacle is amazing, but it's pointless and it's right. stupid, <laughs> you know. And that's basically <laughs> what most war is. It's this pointless, valiant effort right. that is just uh, is it goes nowhere. Like war doesn't get us anywhere. Usually, it usually sets things back or just starts a new uh a new antagonism forward for the future and that's all this you know that's all this war is is just a bunch of people dying for some other guy's uh you know cause which um you know it's really rough uh one of the other things that we uh oh man timothy carey i was gonna say about him is when he's uh every scene he's in it seems like He's playing. Remember last movie, last episode, we talked about how he's uh, playing it like his jaw has been wired shut. This movie, it's like he has a joke that he wants to tell, but he can't say it yet because he always looks like totally. he's about to laugh at something, and it just, <laughs> it's just it just makes me laugh because he's such an oddball and he's so interesting to watch. He like yeah. every scene he's in, your eyes just draw to him, and you just want to see what he's doing. With his, uh, you know, with his body and with his motions and with his face, um, such an odd dude. Oh, totally. Yeah, he's he, he's both like 
dangerous and cuddly at the same time. Like, I feel like yeah. I want to, like, I feel like he's going to murder me, but I also kind of want to just like, you know, have a, have like a, a video game session with him and like <laughs> eat some nachos, you know? Yeah. He, uh, you know, he, he played so many bit parts and, you know, in those, in that time, like if he was now, if he was here around now, he'd be in like, he'd be like the, the star of every serial killer movie. Yeah. He'd be the villain in everything, and like people would be loving this guy because he is. He's so just. Uh, he'd be a Bond villain, I bet, at one point, like one of the henchmen. Yeah, he'd be a good henchman. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I mean, he he also has a great moment as well, sort of like as they're being led out to the um, to the execution line. But um, we'll get to that. But I, I think uh, I think we can kind of jump jump into the courtroom scene here i mean there's there are some kind of scenes in the you know with them waiting and everything but i i think it really it kind of progresses pretty quickly into that all of a sudden they're on trial you know um and Mm -hmm. the courtroom scene itself is just a complete farce i mean they're it, it they're really just going through the motions entirely yeah, there's uh there's nothing there that is uh no one is listening. Everyone knows this is just a uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for? It's a charade. Oh, well, it's a charade, but it's it's the uh it's a thing that they have to do before doing the other oh, thing. Formality. It's just it's a formality. Yeah. Like none no, nothing is going to be solved or minds changed in this. This is a formality that we have to do. And, you know, Kirk Douglas is, you know, pointing out, like, just all the things that are wrong about this whole entire situation. So he gets another moment to right. lay on a nice, thick, heavy monologue about injustice yeah. and uh, humanity. Well, this is the big social you know, message moment from him, you yeah. know, I mean, and, and that, you know, I, I love what he's saying and he's right. And I would probably say the same thing if I was in that position, if I could be that eloquent when I was that angry. Um, but it's also completely useless and not going to do anything. I mean, you know, it's not, um, it's not the smart play in that situation. Although, you know, who knows what the smart play would, I, I I don't think there was anything he could have said beyond like, say hello to my little friend that would have gotten (laughs) these guys out of that situation. Um, and I think this scene most closely mirrors the, um, uh, the final scene in the film, uh, in contrast to how they're presented, you know, they, um, both scenes have a theatricality to them that is completely opposite. You know, you've got these gr- this grandiose hall, uh, with these big windows, um, you know, spilling sunlight into the mm-hmm. room, um, and everybody's in their, their Sunday best, uh, you know, for this, uh, you know, act that's just as general morose lounging on a couch yeah it's just as false and uh off key as the the song being sung uh in the final moment and um and there is this moment of sort of grotesquerie when you realize you know when kind of everybody there realizes like what's happening and just feels dirty you know, and I think those guys mm-hmm. do feel dirty in that moment, sitting behind that desk. They're not going to change their minds, but I do think they know what they're doing is completely uh, just what they have to do, and they're going to yeah. hold their noses and 
you know pull exactly. the lever exactly and just get it yeah. done and one like it's worth noting that you know uh, George Roulard, General George Roulard, who set all this in motion, excuses himself yeah. from these proceedings. Right. He's like, ah, you don't need me to be there. Yeah. It, it'll all, it's better if I'm not there. Yeah. And, you know, he also doesn't have the stomach for what he's done and just doesn't doesn't even want to be bothered with it. Yeah, and he, but he's, yeah, I mean, I, lo- I think he's the most interesting character in this movie. Um, and he, the thing I like most about his character, I guess kind of as I'm talking, it kind of reminds me of um, Orson Welles in The Third Man to, to a certain degree. You know, he's so, uh, he always has the right thing to say in the moment, even though he's pure evil. And mm. as he's, you know, I mean, I think if you didn't think very hard about the things he says in the, in the party scene and in the final scene um, with uh, Kirk Douglas, um, you know, if you didn't have Kirk Douglas there to throw it all in his face with like a, a snappy comeback afterwards, um, yeah. you you would you would say, oh, that sounds reasonable. You know, he oh, the yeah. things that he's saying are monstrous and disgusting, but the way that he says them makes them sound logical, and I think that's something that's very uh, all too common um, today in our sort of like you know, uh, PR and corporate groomed, um, politics that there's, uh, they, evil people have figured out ways to say things in a palatable way that makes it sound reasonable to people who aren't paying attention. And I think oh, yeah, the bana- he's really the great The banality of evil. The banality of evil. Yeah, you know, but it's, that... it's more than that because I feel like those guys sitting behind the desk are, are the banality of evil. This guy mm-hmm. is like the charm of evil, like the debonair of no, evil, there you, go. you know? And I think that like makes him more dangerous and, and uh, sort of, you know, makes him a more, even more compelling villain because you could kind of see being on his side in this weird way because he, you know, he is, uh, he does lead this life. You know what I mean? He's drinking brandy mm-hmm. and, and that that dance scene, which like is so obviously an Ophel's uh, tribute, that sh- those mm-hmm. shots, um, like it looks uh, it looks super fun. Like I want to be at that party. I don't want to be in oh, the yeah. dark room, like blackmailing the the general. I want to go out and have a good time, you know. Yeah, uh-huh. it's uh yeah, and it's juxtaposed right before that with those men finding out that they're all going to die yeah and then they cut they cut it's a hard cut too it's not even like exterior let's establish this it's like right to a bunch of people having a great time and the camera's back to that airy light over everything having a good time feeling and uh because that battle has had no effect on them at all um there's nothing that has touched them and that's you know and that can go, you know, trace all the way back to, you know, the French Revolution and just that, uh, you know, the way that the uh, upper class, the bourgeoisie, were just hanging out and doing their yeah. business. Um, and while everyone was dying and starving in the streets. Um, and that's the same thing we got going on here. You have all these these men whose lives are hanging in the balance of these people who just do not give a shit about them at all. And, uh, yeah, and leading the charge is, you know, that guy is uh, Georges Brulard, the general. And that, that conversation he has with, uh, with, uh, uh, with, uh, excuse me, with, uh, Kirk Douglas's character, he's, uh, 
you know, he is he is just as charming, and he just basically blows him off. He's like, hey, don't make a big thing of right. this. Let's just be done, and uh, let's have a good night. Uh, sorry I didn't invite you to this party, but, you know, I figured with all this, you being with them right now, it's not the best place for you. And then he drops that bomb about uh, being uh, informed that uh, uh, Moreau was going to uh, try to have all of his own men killed with the uh, artillery attack. And he takes that information, stuffs it in his pocket, and says, eh, I'm going to go back to my party. Yeah, absolutely right. It's like, this is something I'll use later right. to my advantage. Well, and speaking of that's... hard cuts, I mean, that moment where he where Kirk Douglas lays it out there for him and he slams the door and you do this basically just smash cut to to the extreme close up of the uh the general like as he slams the door when you know and the music drops out and he's like uh what now mm-hmm. you know i mean that's like yeah. and kubrick there's a lot of hard cuts in this movie i mean kubrick is not yeah. interested in easy transitions um, but that no. is the sort of for me that's the the hard cut to end all hard cuts of just like oh yeah shroop. like it's like a he, he a... i think he probably had a record scratch in there in like early <laughs> early cuts of the film <laughs> yeah that's definitely a uh, that is a huge beat yeah. like that is a big changing beat in that scene and so for that he uses the editing to definitely uh, you know push that beat all the way to the forefront yeah. so you understand this is a big turn and uh but no it's it's great and he does that quite often he doesn't he definitely doesn't smooth things over there are very very uh f- you know thoughtful um juxtapositions between uh especially when we're dealing with the two social classes um you know we are, we are going from like this pitiful meal of people you know these guys dying right to a nice little luncheon um right. setting the uh, opulence of that uh, manse and then uh you know he does that very intentionally which is you know uh, what i was saying like at the beginning of the uh, episode um you know kubrick is fully allowed to express an artistic theme throughout the entire piece and you see him playing with it throughout from the uh, trench long dolly shots in the trenches to the long dolly shots as the men are led to be executed um, you have that same feeling that no matter what happens, you know, whether you're in the trenches or you're at this beautiful place, you know, death is, is waiting for us all at the end of that path. And this is, you know, one of the few times where he finally turns the camera around and we see what the destination is, which is those yeah. uh, stakes that have been tied up for them. You know, before that, we're leading and we lead and we lead and we lead. And then we spin the camera around and we move towards death. Which is, uh, you know, very, very um, well played visually in this in in, in the film. Oh, it's incredible! I mean, that the, so those shots of, of the men sort of walking down the pathway towards the the stakes, the, those are just iconic Stanley Kubrick shots, and the way that he um, shoots everything, they he shoots them dead on, uh, you know, with mm-hmm. this really wide angle lens, and then he's got the background sort of slightly off you know it, the camera's not canted but it's tilted uh just so the background is is not f- head-on despite mm-hmm. the fact that the people are head-on and it just makes yeah. this it gives you this feeling uh of 
unease but immediate identification with the person because they are what you are watching and you and that person are disconnected from this world that they are living in and it's very um you know it's it's alienating but it's uh it's empathetic at the same time because you are identifying so strongly with that character while rejecting their world and the way that he does that in that moment really like hit me this time that like this is you know this is um malcolm mcdowell and clockwork orange um or tom cruise and eyes wide shut like these are the these moments that it's it's really hard to point to films by other directors that get that same level of um identification yet removal with the um with what is being depicted um and i I think that way that it sort of tracks them down to these stakes is also reminiscent of um jack nicholson in the shining as he goes out of this hotel into this maze of of ice um you know they it's it's the the juxtaposition of kubrick the irony of kubrick this um, death among opulence. Um, you know, you know, these people probably, these, these soldiers weren't shot in front of a a chateau in real life. You know, that that's, that's not the kind of place where that sort of thing would happen. Um, but it were, it It would never sully the grounds around, but you never question, you never question it in the movie because it feels so right. You know, the way he shoots it, it feels, um, it feels perfect for for what he's he's trying to go for. Yep, and it stands as a as a fantastic symbol of what the what the film has been leading up to at this point as well. Um, and then yeah, you have the you have the three guys and uh, two of the things we forgot to kind of mention as we went through is that uh, our fearful Sergeant Boulanger who uh, who threw the grenade and killed the guy is later the one who won't lead the troops out onto the field which is another act right. of cowardice and then kurt and then um you know uh ralph meeker explains to explains to kirk douglas about you know what the deal is why he's there because this guy is wants him to die because he so he won't be able to tell on him about uh the fact that he killed one of his own men and then so you know kirk douglas makes him uh be the one who uh, leads the execution so he has to face each character, especially Ralph Meeker, and uh, face him face to face to carry out and personally be the one who has to get rid of the man who uh, he wants to kill. So there's no, uh, you know, there isn't that level of the rich and powerful having things enacted on their benefit and not having to be there physically to see these horrible things happen. But at the same time, it's it's a horrible, uh, you know. Kirk Douglas is using his power to make this guy do something he doesn't want to do. Um, you know, it's still, it's another level of that power. You know, it's kind of wielding it for good, but really it's right. not that good either. He's still abusing his power to make this guy pay instead of just flat out writing him up for that whole thing. And, you know, just doing it. Uh, I think that's the that's the term I, I use the most in my notes is just how how unjust so much of this film is like everything is unjust in how it's how it's taken out because 
of the the system the, the system we have set up for these people to exist within uh, it allows un injustice to run rampant because as long as it stays within the rules that have been laid out it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong all that matters is did you follow this rule yep there's no morality in this world it's just it's straight up like right or wrong does it follow the rules set in the book no okay then you have to be killed because of this and it's like well that that's not just it's like oh, justice has no place in this society which is also you know why we have that courtroom scene which is just so infuriating that you just see the mockery that they're making of a justice system and it's a justice system that us as americans use all the time which is also can be just as cruel and unjust to certain people of social classes and he's you know it translates very well um to what we have going on here in the united states as well yeah i i totally agree i mean it's uh it is a rough a rough viewing um because you do there's so many moments here that you want to um you know jump into the screen and make everything <laughs> You know, it make everything clear to everybody. You know, you want to tell everybody, yeah. you know, no, he's the asshole and you're the right person and everybody just get the, get your business together. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's one of those films, but it it's uh, there's just enough, um, I think, nuance in, um, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, in Brulard and in kind of the the power dynamics at play that I think make it richer than just simply um every everybody's um, a message picture i guess is what i should say yeah like, social, I don't, yeah, social picture. yeah i don't think that that i don't think that this film rises to that and i think the reason why it um it's it's sustained itself so long is because it's um more interesting than just telling you a particular message or a particular thing that you have to do to make everything better um yeah and um you know I think the other World War One movie that comes up uh, a lot, obviously, is uh, Grand Illusion, and I actually just recently saw that uh, on the big screen. Um, it, it's a great movie, um, but I do think it. There are moments when the kind of message of the movie comes out of people's mouths a little bit too straightforwardly, um, mm -hmm. and I think this film is a little bit more complex than that. Um, and part of that is that what Kirk Douglas is saying when he kind of rages against uh, the powers that be um, is pretty specific to what's happening in those moments. He doesn't go big. Um, and I think yeah. that helps the film feel less like it's trying to tell you something universal. Um, and in so doing... Uh, tells you something universal in a more effective way, I think, than if they just kind of came out with it. Um, yeah, and in the hands of a like a studio director. Yeah, and you can and you can tell that like Kubrick wanted to go someplace else. Like that's why half of this movie is 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 in France and Germany, um, because it's uh, you know he he wanted to get away um, from what he knew and from out from underneath the uh, United Artists who who you know had so many demands on him for the killing to you know recut it and retest it and getting yelled at by uh, uh hating uh, sterling hayden's uh uh you know p 
people about how he handled uh, the the acting and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, well, and he never made um, a movie in in America again after the killing. No. That was the last one. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that that removal uh, certainly helped him uh, in, in that regard. Um, so uh, obviously, there's like the Moreau confrontation scene, but um, but I want to. Sp- I think that we've kind of covered it um, already, unless that you had anything particular that you wanted to add about that that moment, either the Moreau or the um, um, or the after he leaves and uh, and Brulard uh, kind of uh, tries to promote Kirk Douglas. Yeah, I think that my favorite my favorite little bit is when uh, you know Brulard finally kind of turns on Moreau, and Moreau has that like last vestige of like lying to himself. In which he says, uh, you know, I'm the only completely innocent yeah. man in this whole affair. Which you're just like, oh my god, you're such a douche. Yeah. I just, um, now, now, like, whatever kind of, like, uh, sympathy I felt for you at the beginning by being used as a piece for a Brulard to kind of move you around has completely vanished with you completely be unwilling to accept your role in all this. Um and then yeah, there's the Kirk Douglas and Brulard, uh, Brulard final little piece as he kind of like, you know, like the devil comes in to tempt him with all this other stuff, you know, which you're saying, you know, he has the silver tongue, the silver tongue monster that uh, tries to uh, use his powers on uh, Dax, and Dax kind of doesn't give in, and he has that wonderful line uh, uh, where Brulard was kind of like, "What have I done wrong?" You know. I've done everything right. that I'm supposed to do. And Kirk Douglas has that line. It's like, it's because you don't know is is why, you don't know that answer is why I pity you. It's because of that, you know. And I, I, I like that. That's a, that's a nice moment to kind of find, you know, finish that scene and put a period at the end of that kind of, that concept that has been percolating throughout the whole film. And it's nice. And then we move on to, uh, this little coda at the end. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to, uh, uh, obviously I think this is kind of the scene. This is the Rorschach test of this movie, I think. Um, and it's also kind of the most talked about scene in the film. And, um, I wanted to read something before I kind of got into how I feel about it, but I wanted to read something from, uh, from one of the Kubrick books that I read, uh, that I've been reading. Um, it's, uh, it's called Kubrick, the definitive edition. It's, um, uh, I think, I think it's pronounced Michelle cement, but it's, um, it's kind of one of the definitive, um, uh, Kubrick books, uh, that there, that's out there. Um, and so he says about this scene to interpret the climax of paths of glory along humanistic lines in the spirit of say Renoir's Le Grand Illusion is to misunderstand Kubrick's intentions. After the execution of their three innocent comrades, the other soldiers move off rather passively to listen to a cafe singer who manages to bring tears to their eyes with a complacently sentimental song. It's an ironic coda to a film in which burlesque is a crucial element, sometimes implicitly sometimes overtly as in the scenes involving the high command. Mm, that's nice. So what do you think of that? I, uh, I, I like that. I was thinking, uh, not fully in, you know, that's, 
I did not make the connection in terms of the, the grotesque burlesque that is high command and the act that they are putting on. I wasn't thinking in terms of that, and that's really, really fascinating. That's something I'll have to mull over even more now, uh, having it pointed out that way. Um, but, yeah, like to, to watch that coda at the end of the film, to watch the end, um, it's, it almost is like a, a, a complete encapsulation of everything that has happened from here on out. You have this, you know, these, uh, you, Kirk Douglas walks away from that, that, uh, that upper class world and comes back down to his men and he sees them acting at their most base and animalistic and you see him just like almost, uh, like just have a complete distaste for them in his, like in his mouth. Like you can see he's not happy. Uh, you know, with the outcome of the events, and then you see humanity at its most base, where they're just all like cavorting and drinking and yelling, and there's this poor girl up on stage crying, and they're just all insulting her, and you have this because it's it's not like it's not like they're at this burlesque show where there's this woman up there who knows what she's doing and she's milking the audience right. for this moment. You know, she's up there against her will. She's she's someone who's been kind of forced into this position and she's crying when she's led up to the stage and you see him watching them treat her without any sort of humanity which is once again you know it's the bottom you know just when we thought we we're at the bottom of the of the ladder with uh sergeant boulanger with one of the privates and how he treats them now we're with all the privates and how they treat the enemy yep. and not even the enemy but a woman who was probably captured or escaped or was on the wrong side and how she's being forced to be there. And instead of like, there's no compassion at all. Um, and then the thing that, the thing that I interpreted the scene to be about was about how true emotion and Music, which is a stand-in for some sort of art, is the humanity that can help fix a lot of these problems. Because as you see the characters break down, hum along, some are crying as well, you have them finally like not being men, like they're being uh, human. Which, you know, this whole movie has been about don't be a baby, don't cry about this, be a man, face your fears, go and die. And then you have this moment where they're uh, taken aback by this woman's humanity and they are reduced to being human again for only a moment, which in turn gives Kirk Douglas a moment to realize why he continue why he will continue this fight forward is to kind of try to uh, keep this this idea and this hope of humanity alive um, and that 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 that's that's where I took the scene is just that that kind of uh, uh, statement of uh, of the only thing that'll make us war is destruction isn't what's going to make us into greater people greater men it's uh it's uh the humanities it's art it's creation that is going to lead us to be bigger and better things well that i like that um it's 
pretty much the opposite of what I just read to you. Um, yeah. I, you know, I uh, lean much more strongly towards, uh, towards your take on this scene. Um, and I was very taken aback by that comment that almost uh, dismisses as incorrect any warm reading of Kubrick's films. Mm. Um, particularly in a book that is so widely regarded as uh, one of the definitive uh, works on Kubrick's career. And you really see, and this uh, that that text was probably this is a revised edition, but that text was probably written um, in the uh, early '90s, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You really see where this perception of Kubrick's work as cold comes from. You know, these are the leading yeah. lights of of his um, uh, academia, and uh, to me. I, I don't think that you necessarily need to go to kind of larger, a larger message in that moment. I think you can, and I like your take mm-hmm. on this, but I think that it's okay if this is just a moment where uh, the curtain comes down, uh, you know, or, or, um, or goes, you know, gets revealed the backstage gets revealed um and people uh show their humanity for for a split second you know um and i don't necessarily think that that means that um you know there's redemption at the end of this film it's not i don't think it's intended to be a happy ending to the movie in the same way that i i don't think that uh moreau getting his comeuppance is intended to be a happy ending to the movie. These three men died, uh, and Brulard is still in power. And even if he wasn't in power, it would just be another guy like him doing exactly what he does. Maybe just not as suavely. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, things would just go on the way that they, they go. And I think this gets to kind of where people see, um, Kubrick as, cold and and cynical um for today what people think of when they think of being cynical is kind of being above it all like a daily show kind of you know everybody's Mm -hmm. stupid so i'm going to stand above them and and rule on how stupid they are um and that's not really what cynicism is that cynicism is uh more of a belief that regardless of sort of society or social norms or pressures that humans basically revert back to human uh, nature and that in a lot of ways human nature can be ugly Um, but not always and I think you don't make movies about the ugliness of human nature because you agree with it or because you want to convince people of it you make movies about that because you want change. You want people to recognize those things and do better in the future. And I think that's what Kubrick does in this film. And I think in most of his later films as well. Um, and I think this final scene is more a reflection on, um, what came before it than what could 
potentially come after it in terms of, uh, you know, these guys feeling like they've re regained their humanity before they head back to the, uh, to the war. Like that, that's not really going to happen. That's not the world of this movie. But I think yeah. that by using this uh, depiction of bad theater uh, to uh, show the, uh, you know, grotesqueness, grotesqueness of um, the theater that came before, uh, you, you really get at the, the, the truth underneath all of this and that, you know, we are all sad, desperate people trying to find connections with other humans. And, um, you know, that, that is a profound statement, even if it's not something that is going to change the outcome. Am I making yeah. sense? <laughs> no, that may, no, it makes perfect sense. I, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a reading that I guess, I guess, uh, like any good, uh, piece of art, it's, it, it he leaves it to be able to be interpreted a few different ways. Yeah. You know, he's not being def definitive about it. But, you know, at the same point, like, really, like, that kind of scene ends up being a bit of a mirror for you to understand a bit about yourself. Sure. No one, you know, it is true what you're saying about, like, uh, they become, you know, the most human they are, which is both the, the gross grotesqueness of them being, you know, vile and throwing things and yelling and cursing and screaming to them just blubbering and looking for a connection for that one moment. Um, you know, the only other mention of any sort of uh, sex in this film is Ralph Meeker has a line yeah. where he says, you know, this whole time that I've been thinking about death, I didn't once think about sex. And then you have these characters who, you know, like in Grand Illusion, where you see one of the men dress up like a woman for a play, and you see all the other men just staring at him, and you know all what they're thinking, which is, you know, I haven't seen a woman or had a woman in a long time, and it's this uncomfortable moment of, uh, of just uh, desperation and then sadness when you realize what, you know, they still have lost so much. In this movie, it starts out with that sense of like, oh, it's a girl, you know, I'm just waiting for someone to yell, you know, take off your top or, you know, something stupid like that. But instead, it's just that simple song she sings that makes all the men stop for a second and pause and remove themselves from the horrible, horrible things that are going on around them. And to kind of like have that moment of the other side of humanity, which could be compassion or could be uh, acceptance or could be, uh, you know, just uh, togetherness, that, 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 that single thing that happens to them. And then Kirk Douglas being able to recognize that in them, yeah. uh, you know, which helps him to, you know, OK, I have done the right thing. I am on the right path. And then, of course, you know, you have. Right. All right. Back to yeah. war. I mean, I think that the other thing, you know, I just uh, that makes me kind of bristle at at a kind of ironic or removed uh, sort of interpretation of this scene is that 
it's hard for me to imagine somebody not being moved by this moment. It's done so effectively. Mm. And I think, you know, I've read many takes on this film from people who, uh, you know, wept at the scene. And I think to say that this is an ironic presentation um, of that emotion that people feel um, is to imply that Kubrick's intention with this scene was to play a joke on the audience. And I don't think Kubrick is ever interested in um, talking down to his audience, which is essentially what that would be doing, you know, to say, Oh, here's your, Mm -hmm. you know, red meat, you uh, morons. Like, how does it feel after what I've just shown you? Um, I don't think that that uh, is a, is a valid reading of, of Kubrick's intentions, making movies in general. No, I, I, I agree. I think, I think, uh, like I said, I think that just shows how cynical the person who made that, uh, assessment of the film is, and not so much what Kubrick's intent is. Like you said, if he, he just kind of randomly let the girl pick a song you know, then that to me says that he is thinking about the humanity aspect of what's yeah, going the on feeling. here. The yeah, connection, totally. the feeling. Yeah. Because if it was, you know, because otherwise he would have layered and picked a song that would add to the to the absurdity of the situation. You know, he would have layered something deeper in there to kind of twist the knife in a little bit. And, you know, instead he kind of just slowly twists the knife a bit at the end with the the, the 701 has to go back right. out to the front, which you know is a complete and total act by either uh, Brulard or Moreau yeah. to just fuck with fuck with Douglas, which they say they're going to do again. You know, both of them said, I'm going to have it out with yeah. you, and you're going to be destroyed by the time I'm done with you. And the other one was a little more subtle with it, but, you know, he knows that everyone's going to die. We're all going to die. Right. And you know that's you know the, the the title of the film is that statement and everything we've learned is that and i think the moment that is when is these men not being men for a moment but being human for a moment yeah you know it's that letting the guard down being able to cry being able to sing along being able to feel something that isn't holding up a wall that allows you to be a killing machine who kills Germans and doesn't let it affect them. Um, and, you know, it's very important that it's a German woman singing the song to them. Yeah. Because otherwise, if it was a French girl, you know, that's an obvious uh, home and sentiment and sentimentality. Right. By having a German peasant girl singing a German song to them, it's it speaks to universe universality you know it speaks deeper and and further um than if it was just otherwise it would just be written off as sentimental you know so i i do i agree with you like i think we said in our very first episode um you know he is a he is concerned with humanity um he may not be concerned with all of humanity okay so that's yeah so (laughs) so that that's the last (laughs) thing i wanted to touch on about this scene um there's a there's a sort of killer line from kubrick uh in the audio interview that's on the uh the oh i have it written down i have it written down (laughs) 
if I ever had a decent part for a woman, I never seem to have written one in any yes, of my films. Yes, which for some reason I never write into my films. Yep. Um, so, yeah. I, 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 we don't have to we don't <laughs> we don't have to get too <laughs> deep into that. Um, but I I think you know it was worth mentioning because it's on the Paths of Glory disc, and um, I'm yeah. sure we'll get back to that. But I think. Uh, by way of talking about that a little bit, I wondered if you had any thoughts on the fact that, you know, we do see some women dancing in the dance scene or whatever, mm -hmm. but there's not really any other women except for this woman in this movie. And I also, and, and so I, I guess part of it is like, what, you know, is that just the fact that it's like a war movie? Or is there something else at play there? And then the other thing is about the the choice to make this a woman that kind of tears down this facade or, as you say, um, gets them to stop being men for a moment. Um, is, is that... Is, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if there's... Um, a unconscious or subconscious uh, gender dynamic at play there that's a bit more uh, unsavory than simply just uh, a it's a lady and so they ha are able to heckle her at the beginning of the sequence I don't know I think it's I do think it's it, it might it might not be intentional but it is subconscious he still does not concern himself with women at all i think uh the first time we talked about this i think i came down i came down with basically this i think i said kubrick does not like women <laughs> which you know I, as i refine this even more where i just said i don't think he i don't think he just doesn't concern himself with them and this might be and this is like probably some sort of unconscious bias that he has developed over the years being the time period that the movie you know time period that he grew up in the time period that he you know he became a man in and the you know the kind of messages that are being you know sent you know this is the beginning of the heyday of like gentlemen's clubs and playboys and um you know just this ob object you know objectifying objectification of women and i think this is another example of just kind of like this woman is there for a purpose she's an object to uh, have this happen to this men, these men and it's the same in his other as in his other films like rarely are they there to be autonomous or have their own agency or have uh, something important to contribute to the film they're usually there as either objects to be admired objects to cause emotion whether it's a sexual desire or a uh, a uh, you know a cog uh, a monkey a, a wrench in the uh, gears to slow things down um, you know if we go through film by film like his progression of how uh, women are depicted in his films doesn't increase or grow or change very much you know even when we go back to the killing and the two women there you know you had Faye who is you know does not think nicely of herself and it's written by two men 
and you know and you have her the her counterpart the uh the seductress the femme fatale who also you know has some great lines of dialogue but she is a she is a cruel uh, manipulative shrew yeah. so once again another horrible depiction of of uh, of a woman yes she played it well and she did a great job acting but that's a testament to the actress and less of to uh, what Kubrick and Jim Thompson were trying to say. Yes, a character character like to... that wouldn't bother me as much if it wasn't for the fact that it's a standard character in noir and mm-hmm. there's not a lot of reversed sort of honorable, decent female characters. <laughs> Complex, yeah. Yeah, but and that's in, a, what... in a positive, strong way. <laughs> exactly. And then we go to this film here and it's, you know, once again, a girl is a woman, a girl is used in uh, to uh, just create an emotional thing for men. And it's more still about men. You know, they could have each, you know, as horrible as this will probably sound, like they could have each just ravished her. And it was still had the same effect of it's she's there for them to have a, have an emotion about as opposed to her being there with some sort of agency or some sort of thought or some sort of uh, larger understanding. And I think that is because he, you know, I want to say it's a carelessness on his part of just not either understanding or wanting to understand the a woman's role in the world, or those are just not the stories he concerns himself with. You yeah, know? they definitely, I, I mean, they definitely don't seem like they are. I mean, it's interesting too, because, uh, you know, I mentioned Ophel's like he uh, at this at this period, uh, actually, Ophel's died um, while this film was in production. And he um, in interviews mentioned that Ophel's was his favorite director. Um, and, you know, Max Ophel's is, you know, famous for making women's pictures, movies mm-hmm. with women as the central protagonist. Um and uh, it's interesting that he felt that way, and yet in his own films, never really concerned himself with that, uh, with that perspective. Um, I mean, I think the thing that kind of rubs me the wrong way about it is similar to what you're talking about, and I certainly feel like you know, even though they're having like a a nice moment of hope finally like this is still a pretty traumatic experience for her. Like she seems pleasantly surprised when they are no longer screaming at her and are singing along, but she's still not having a good time. (laughs) And I think like it's, you know, it's, it feels a little weird to have this moment, this sort of upbeat, upbeat moment of hope uh, with this woman who's basically captured and forced to perform for soul, for enemy soldiers. Um, and, but I think it, the added layer that kind of makes, that kind of makes it feel a little weird is that, you know, this idea of almost like the woman as the savior, like that she is not able to be represented as an actual human being. That's as complex as the other, uh, human beings that we see throughout the movie that she is this pure thing that like once she sings this magical song the men in the world are going to all see the error of their ways and 
uh, see that, you know, at the end of the tunnel, there's a light or at the end of the trench, there's a light. Um, it is just, it's a little like, I mean, it's, and I hate to say it because it it still moves me even as I like, you know, even as I have this reaction, the, the, the scene is done so well and it's so, I think, really right for the rest of the movie that I still feel, you know, sad for her and sad for them. But it, on this other level, I'm thinking, like, this is kind of a backwards concept. Like, to come up with this idea kind of feels uh, weird to me. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, because if you, if you do decide to kind of, like try to brush past the fact that she's a captive forced and we're talking like a a g like a soldier's bar uh very easily could be the downstairs of a brothel where then they would you know where this is where they display the merchandise they put on a little show then the men can take turns later um upstairs which you know it very easily could be at that time you know war was the the excuse for all kinds of horrible acts you know of inhumanity um, but if you wanted to kind of completely gloss over those ideas or thoughts, um, and go with the, the, uh, the, the only thing that will save men and make them human is women. Right. If you want to go with that kind of idea, um, that's great if it's a continuing theme for him, but it isn't at all. <laughs> You know, there there is no continuing theme of that idea, and I think it's I think it's very, it's 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 a reach, and I can see how you could pat, like I can see how a couple of guys in the nineteen fifties could pat themselves on the back and you know be like yeah that that this is this is really working out this way, but you know looking at it in a modern lens, it is a woman without agency being forced to sing for men. And is yes pleasantly surprised that she hasn't had something right. thrown at her, or the men haven't jumped the stage at her. But at the same time, it's still it's a, you know, it's a forced act um, that she's having to perform for these people, and uh, it it does you know it doesn't read well in the modern lens. But if you we look at it in the you know at the lens at the time, it is still a you know it is still a moment of humanity and the other thing you could kind of read if you really wanted to is you have a bunch of men who are basically in a prison forced to make all these horrible or horrible acts forced to be put upon the stage of war and perform for the rich people you know you have a connectivity between these two people you have these men who are forced to act watching a girl who's being forced to act and having a connection between them yeah. that we're not so different you and I which is also another very human and kind of beautiful sentiment that you can get to Yeah, I definitely think which, there's you know, some of that at play as well. I I I I definitely think so. I mean, I think I think yeah. that I don't bring this up because I think it uh is a necessarily a negative for the film. Um and I also mm-hmm wouldn't be entirely surprised if Kubrick wasn't aware of, um, that dynamic, uh, even as he was making the film. Um, I think that is part of what makes 
this movie good art you know that there's so much to interact with and there's so many ways to to read a scene like this um so i you know i'm not uh necessarily um rejecting the film because of that aspect because there's something that perhaps is not um super appealing to me on a philosophical level um but i do think it's there and yeah i i, I think well we will continue to uh to bring up this subject because it does uh come up pretty frequently it won't come up in the the next film because there's a lot of uh there's a lot of gay sex in the next movie but the uh yes. <laughs> there's a lot more men with sandals and their shirts off uh in the next movie um, but the, the movie after that, well, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll touch on it and, uh, and pretty much from there on out, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of this, so we'll yeah. have plenty of no, time for it. It's good. <laughs> plenty of time. We'll lay the groundwork now so we can build our working, th- our working yes, exactly. theses as we move yeah, along. Yeah, and then do- the dom- topple the, uh, Kubrick patriarchy. There we go. <laughs> um. So yeah. there's one one last yeah. thing uh, going back. We talked last episode about uh, the fact that Jim oh, Thompson yeah. was pissed that Kubrick uh, gave him a uh, dialogue by instead of a co-screenwriting credit. So uh, he invited him onto this project to help make amends. <laughs> and the sarcastic title card is so <laughs> is so like telling. It's a I think it's like a screenplay by stanley kubrick and then calder there's the ampersand yeah. ampersand calder willingham then there's an italicized yes. and almost like and jim thompson <laughs> Ugh. like he's making me do well this. actually i didn't well actually to. the writers guild made him do it so jim thompson <sighs> wrote the first draft of this screenplay and um kirk douglas was not happy with it because it made Dax more of sort of like a um, uh, a he he wasn't as much of the uh, the central hero uh, in the Thompson yeah. screenplay and um, so uh, Kubrick brought Calder Willingham on who was another one of the authors that he was a fan of at the time um, and uh, they they rewrote the screenplay and uh, I think mostly Calder Willingham rewrote the screenplay but then Kubrick worked on it through filming. Um, but the Writers Guild determined that um, that there was enough of Thompson's dialogue and various other elements in the film uh, to give him credit. Uh, and but yeah, the the italicized and is a really nice touch. I agree. Oh yeah, it's it's a total it's a total sarcastic <laughs> and it's it's hilarious. It's it shows like it shows that pettiness that Kubrick definitely had in him uh, throughout his career all right well um i think once more the rankings are going to be super predictable but yes. am i uh, am i correct in assuming that you're correct uh pads of glory is now in the number one so spot, he just followed by the he killing. just keeps getting better basically he does um we'll yeah, see we'll see where we'll it goes see. from here <laughs> we, we have a couple of uh uh, there's at least two now, two in my head that I think might drop. I mean, there'll be many that drop below Paths of Glory, but there's a couple in here that might even drop below right. Killing coming yeah. up here. Yeah, well, so the next one we have uh, is Spartacus. We are um, counting Spartacus as a Stanley Kubrick movie, even though Stanley Kubrick himself 
uh, would not be very happy with that. Um, you know, he directed too much of it not to count. So I probably it. haven't seen Spartacus uh, in. Oh man, it's. I think it's been at least over a decade. So it, it'll be an interesting experience for me. Nice. Yeah, I'm. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. It's a. Uh, it's been a while for me as well, and uh, having a little bit more uh, uh, deeper understanding of the uh, of uh, his career and his work, and also just uh, having recently watched uh, uh, the Cohen Brothers' uh, Hail Caesar, oh, yeah. I just uh, won't be able to not help but think of all the scenes they're lampooning in that. Yeah, movie. well, um, I I think uh, I think if you s- you know, depending on when we record this episode, I think if you start watching the movie now, you should be done with it right when we're ready to record the next episode. <laughs> I, I'm going to watch it, and I'm also going to do completely watch the intermission as well, <laughs> like the whole thing. I'm going to watch the pre, the the, uh, the enter act, the intermission, and the outro. Yeah, I think you have to um, completely. Yeah. I mean, because if we're going to be the complete there you Kubrick, go, the complete. Kubrick yeah. I, had, I had an argument with a friend of mine recently. He goes, do you pronounce it Kubrick or Kubrick? I'm like, who pronounces it Kubrick? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, well, I do. I'm like, well, that's wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, if we're going to if we're going to do the complete Kubrick, then uh, we have to. All right. Yeah, we got to watch Spartacus. There we go, Spartacus Stanley. All right. Well, see you next time. All right, Matthew. It was. We'll see you later, buddy.